Hi everybody, I'm your host, Soph Corcoran. Welcome to episode, season two, episode eight of Don't Be a Stranger. I have a very special guest today, um, Melissa DeGazelle. Welcome so much. I am so happy to have you here. I will say like, so I've had you as a professor since freshman year and I just admire you and your teaching style and everything you do so much. And it is just like, I'll just start off with this. I just think that you are probably one of the most best and life-changing professors that I've ever had. And I know that you haven't even been able to like talk yet on this podcast, but I just wanted to start with that. So welcome. So thank you so much. And thank you for that compliment. Yeah, I, I've, I've had so, like whenever people would ask me like, what's like the best class that you've taken? They're like, wait, you guys don't like take Melissa's class. Like I like, gained so much like even in like the writing 101 or 102 or whatever like like what like life-changing courses like and it's just like when you think about like just a course like that and still having the power that you have like so like thank you so much um how have you been um I've been all right I feel like this has been an intense time in history and just you know everybody's individual struggles as well yeah coming up to the almost midpoint right or past oh my gosh going on almost thanksgiving yeah yeah um how has your semester been it's been it's been good um i'm teaching so i'm teaching three writing classes so that's you know that's that is a lot it's a lot of grading a lot of kind of one-on-one um and like helping students move through the writing process and then i'm lucky to get to teach this new ISEM class, um, Health in the Humanities, that my friend Abby Orenstein and I got to create together. Which is actually a class that I'm in right now, and what a, which is another class that I'm like pushing and shoving people to take. My roommate, um, are you planning to teach it again next fall? So, yeah, so Abby, I think we'll teach it in the spring, and then I'll teach it in the fall. Yeah, so um, just some a fun little fact so dale who we were just briefly talking about dale michaels um told my roommate to take health and the humanities and i because i have been raving about it and i talked about all the beauty and the bloodshed which is one of the films that we watched in class so i actually wanted to ask you like how that course kind of came to light and like you and abby's process and making that together yeah so i think the university got some sort of grant which i forget what it was called but um i had never developed a course before i mean we always sort of develop the courses but they're kind there there is a template of some sort so um we were getting paid for it so that that was kind of one of the incentives and Abby and I had been working previously on a project that didn't really take off yet um in thinking about doing research around birth stories and storytelling um and so anyway it just kind of like came together in that way so yeah it's we she is i think her phd is in she's an english phd or something close to that but she's got a focus in yoga um yeah and again i'm probably sort of butchering that and i don't know the specifics of it and then i sort of was coming from um, you know, also, you know, be having an MFA in, in creative writing, having been an English major, and then also working in or adjacent to healthcare. Yeah, and especially like at a university like this, it is just, I think, so important to discuss these topics. And we do so many great readings. Um, which one do you think is so core to the piece, like of, in, to the course? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I think that the readings about narrative medicine, at least to frame the course, but after your group's presentation, I've been thinking a lot more about how, I mean, narrative medicine super important. There's also other ways that people talk about it, like health humanities, medical humanities, um, but so much of it is taken from indigenous knowledge and storytelling that you can't help but also have to talk about that co-optation and how you know uh medical humanities narrative medicine i think owes a lot to that indigenous storytelling so i would i I don't know if i have a specific reading i do like to read like the short stories with you all um but 
and all the beauty in the bloodshed that documentary when i first saw it and for anybody who doesn't know it um i don't think it is well known um nan golden who's a an artist photographer artist activist um who um was an addict and you know has been through recovery started a group that um tried to and was successful in getting the Sackler name off of museum galleries um and the Sacklers are who owned uh Purdue Purdue thank you Purdue (laughs) Pharma and uh who uh you know developed Oxycontin yeah and I like what a beautiful film that we watched. I was like crying in my seat. Like so and I keep talking about like my two roommates that I just like I like talk about this for so much about how they should like sit and watch this movie cuz everything made sense and everything went hand in hand and it was also parallel and that like that is a movie I think everyone should see and yeah. just watch and witness cuz it's so important. Well, and yeah. to me when I went to undergrad specifically I wish I remembered more of it. Um, I definitely remember the the money I owe for that time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I, what I remember most are the films that we watched. Yeah. And even being someone who studied books and writing, mm-hmm. you know, it was the films that stuck out most to me. And I think that that's why I try to incorporate that. Mm-hmm. Students obviously tend to like yeah. films better too. Yeah, and I think it's just like, it's so refreshing to see something that's happening like like now and like we are witnessing and like we can be a part of changing that history because I can say before that I like I, you know, I lost my grandfather to fentanyl so I've always kind of been like very like open about like I want to work in addiction I'm a psych major and it's something I want to do but now I like see it in such a more like personal and like sensitive light and like as Nan as an artist and the steps that she went to to get rid of that name is so like it's uh, incredible yeah an incredible film that we watched yeah and I think I actually cried in class last week it's (laughs) because I was trying you know we had like five minutes or something to discuss it because the internet likes to go out so much so we didn't have as much time to discuss as we would have liked to but you know trying to I think like express and mirror back some of what you all were talking about that like activism and like you know any kind of organizing work takes so long and it's like you often don't get to see the end or you know see that success or those wins or maybe you get to see small wins and I think like that film did a good job of showing like okay we not to say that they weren't in the fight way long before because they were, you know, um, talking about, like, AIDS activism, yeah. but that it took four years of, like, you know, constant um, organizing and protest to mm-hmm. just get names off of yeah. this. Yeah. And it just was, like, how impressive. And I remember one of the moments that really, like, stood out to me the most, like, I think my jaw was, like, on the floor was when they took the doctor out in handcuffs that was standing outside the building. I, like, I couldn't believe that and how they don't trust people in medicine. And I, it was, I, that, like, I, like, when I tell you, like, I tell everybody to watch that film now because I think it's so important to see and discuss. Um, And then, so going back to the health and the humanities, um, what did you kind of know about narrative medicine, like, before going into it? Was it Nothing. Yeah. (laughs) Nothing. And I still don't really. I mean, I've read some of the, you know, um, so some of the texts that are about how to teach narrative medicine. I would love to take a course sometime. I know that, like... Oh, actually, I think Temple actually has a program. Uh, Columbia has a program. So I think you can also, and maybe Jefferson has some sort of certificate that you can get. Um, but yeah, there's a lot more to learn. Yeah, and um, so this is a big ad. Everybody should take out the humanities. Um, and then talking about like getting conversations started in class, have you noticed like m- more so like a lack of people coming and speaking out, even in your writing classes or? Have you seen, like, more conversation happening? I like to think of that even, like, pre-COVID and post-COVID, but this year feels, like, different in communication and classes. You mean just sort of in general, like, student engagement? Yeah, essentially. Yes, I have. So I would say I always sort of 
feel old when I say some of this stuff, but it's like having taught for 15 years, but 13 or 12 or 13 here, um, I've seen such a shift and then a shift again and then a shift again. So maybe like teaching millennials and again, not to really like categorize by generation, but it's what we do. They seem to have a certain like, I don't know, there, there was... It was just different. I don't totally know how to describe it. The engagement was different. Then COVID happened. Well, then we sort of led up to COVID. I think politically a lot was going on. COVID happened. Uh, We scrambled so much. Uh, Like, I still don't know what happened during those years. And then I feel like when we first came back, we were masked. Then we weren't masked. And there was a big difference. But I find that I found that, like, starting maybe last spring students felt started to feel more engaged like sort of less they were holding back less from speaking in class or you know wanting like engaging in the learning in a certain kind of way I think it's hard to explain though yeah no I just like I noticed that um in like a lot of my classes like that I have like early in the morning like nobody really shows up so I just was like curious if you had just seen like like a lack of people as well too but I'm glad to hear that people are starting to speak out more because like I'm so annoying like I'm I always like I feel like a horrible like student sometimes I'm just like oh my god like shut up um no no well I think too like and that's partially on me that I find that the way that I teach and the way that the classroom sort of community starts to work is it's me and a handful of other students and we sort of run the show it's so personal though it is it is and I always hope that people other students feel comfortable but I also have gotten feedback from them that a lot of them just sort of like to listen and they don't feel like maybe they're able like ready to enter the conversation or something yeah no that's great and I think it's such like a good environment for people to feel like they can say that and can speak out and can talk Um, I know you briefly talked about your collegiate experience. I wanted to kind of ask you if that, like, led to why you wanted to work in higher education and what kind of brought you to higher education. So I really don't consider myself an academic. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I say that, my academic friends are like, but you are because you work (laughs) in higher ed. But I never, like, I have an MFA, which is an art degree in creative writing. So I didn't get a PhD. I never, I did know that I wanted to teach. And I think I wanted to teach because school made me so nervous when I was a student. And I tend to want to push myself to like, just get over whatever fear it is. Um, So I knew that I would come in like as an adjunct. And I just, at the time I was married too. So I felt like, well, that's fine. I'll supplement that income, you know, doing adjuncting. And then I got divorced and then I was like, oh, oh, okay. I can't really live off of this. But to answer your question, I think that, you know, at a certain point going to grad school, I knew I would be teaching, but I still do feel a little bit separate from this maybe conventional academic. I don't really, I do a lot of research, but it's for teaching. It's, you know, based on pedagogy and it's based on like, or what I'm interested in. I'm not really doing research for the university or, yeah, or, (laughs) or to like really move up in any kind of way. That's not, I, I appreciate other people who are doing that, but that's just not for me. No, that is just so cool to just want to just like like if I ever wanted to like do teach at probably college just to like listen to what young people have to say you know because it's just like those those are the, who we need to like mold you know because they're they're what's next yes so I that is just that's such a cool reason I just have to tell you that um I like forgot my question sorry that's how cool that was um I wanted to also ask you kind of about your writing and like what writing you did in school and like do you continue to write and like stuff like that um, I wish I wrote more. So I did. So I was a, you know, I mean, I guess I am a poet still. I wrote, uh, you know, a manuscript when I was in um, grad school. Um, and I still wrote after grad school and I still write, but I don't really publish anymore. I think that there are a few reasons behind that. Um, I think like just being a mom and being a teacher full time and, uh, you know, some of the other jobs that I do. That really kind of is on the back burner, but I would like to get back to it. So mostly poetry. I mean, sometimes I'm invited to 
give a speech at some sort of, you know, demonstration or invited to do things like that, you know, panel presentations. But yeah, most of the creative writing is kind of on the side. Yeah, no, because I, I just had to ask because poetry is such a beautiful art form to me. And I wanted, did you ever write one that like stuck with you, like still like to now that you would say like is your favorite? Of what I've written. Of what you've written, absolutely. Um, maybe. But I'm also somebody who looks back and I'm like, oh, I wrote yeah. that. Uh, or sometimes, I will say once in a while, I'll look back and, and think like, oh, I wrote that? Like, yeah. I would, my brain worked that way. So, yes, I mean, I think I tend to write about the same. And this is just what people do, right? Mm-hmm. Any kind of artist, you're always trying to figure out, figure something out. And mm-hmm. you tend to stay with that subject yeah. because that's your way of working through it. It's and you know trying to make sense of it yeah no i yeah that's just so cool um do you have like a favorite like poem like outside of what you've written obviously <laughs> like that's a good question yeah. um i really love alice notley um who was married to ted berrigan he's passed but they were both poets their kids are poets so um yeah she's amazing and i would say her the poem that sticks out the most is a poem called at night the states and i love it because it's just like the sort of cadence of it and the way that she reads it is very unusual um so yeah alice notley at night the states i gotta check that out i because i'm always like interested in like new literature like i'm pretty like i don't want to say like boring but i stick to just like i'm a very like script writer so i love to experience like new forms of writing because poetry i i'm honestly i have to say i admire you it's it's very hard it's very hard to get your point across in such a short thing and it's so beautiful when people succeed and do that yeah it's powerful i'll also just name a couple other poets no please why not um wendy trevino is also one of my favorite living poets um she is uh i love her politics i just think she's always like spot on with everything and the way i feel like i read probably a poem at the end of our class in writing um revolutionary letter um, and I will also just plug my partner, Ryan Eckes, who's a Philadelphia born poet. Um, definitely probably is my favorite poet. Um, and right, not yeah. just as, you know, I'm not just biased here. Uh, I loved his poetry before we even, you know, started, uh, having a relationship. So those are two people that I would definitely recommend. That's, um, one of the poems of Ryan's that you had shared, like still, like I still think about it, like all the time, like how beautiful, like all the time like i like tell people about it like i I, this sounds like a big ad for all your classes but i'm just such a huge fan yeah it might be memo for labor yes yes yes, it's so good and yeah it's funny that i i always get a little bit nervous at the end of the semester i don't know i've probably you've now had me once you'll probably see it again i I always am like okay i want to leave them with something and i only know and that's when i go back to poetry yeah i'm like okay this is the thing that if they'll remember something, it, it might be this. Yeah, and that, like, that I told, like, I tell people, like, about it. Like, I just, because it's so, I just can't stress how impressive it is to get moved by something so short, you know, small but mighty. It's so great. Um, yeah, I just needed to just share with you. I just have Melissa's past written down as one of my questions because it says different jobs and tasks because I'm just so interested to learn about your past because you've done so much as a doula and worked with Planned Parenthood. And I know you worked in like protesting and stuff like that. So I don't know where I want to start. Um, I guess kind of if you wanted to go chronologically and I'll just give it to you to tell your story. Yeah, sure. Okay. So no all my jobs, <laughs> right? Yeah. So when I, I mean, I'll go way back and just do that part briefly. When I graduated undergrad, cause I'm sure that's probably a little bit of interest for people. Um, I went right into, I worked as a youth director at a Unitarian Universalist church, um, you know, 23 years old. And I was working with teenagers, so they were 18, you know, they were almost my age. I was so, I didn't know what I was doing. I was not raised in that religion, but Mm -hmm. it was a lot of fun. And um, I definitely learned a lot. And at the same time, I also started working at Rosemont as the director of their women's center. Um, 
the pay was really bad. Um, but I feel like I got a lot of experience in both of those kind of situations. Uh, I, I also worked at Barnes and Noble. I served for like, you know, was a server for like one month. Cause I, I don't know how people do it. Yeah. Food is a horrible job to work in. Yeah. I'm going yes. on 10 years in food service. Wow. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Not for, I would just hide in the bathroom. I hid in the bathroom at Barnes and Noble too. Oh. Um, and then after all that, then I went back to grad school cause I was like, oh, this doesn't, you know, I, I like these sort of jobs but they're not exactly what I want to do yeah. so then I started teaching um but also you know at post grad school but I also was and still am a doula so for anybody that doesn't know what that is I help people I support people in giving birth um you know pregnancy birth postpartum um i do all kinds whatever you name it sometimes i'm massaging them sometimes we're dancing sometimes we're in the shower together sometimes i'm making food sometimes i'm walking the dog usually always i'm making sure that their partner is not passing out um they the partner tends to be the one that needs the most support is there something specific that drew you to working with babies and mothers and people with babies so I, well, I always really wanted to be a mom. Um, and, but the first time I saw birth, my friend gave birth in her early twenties and it was actually really traumatic for her, for me, like all around a ton of interventions that probably weren't needed now that I know what I know. And, but I left just feeling like, what was that? And so that's where I started to get interested in it. Um, I, you know, got pregnant, had a baby. So I was, um, and at that point I had already sort of, um, been, I would call myself like a birth nerd. I was already like researching everything and watching everything that I could. So, so then when I had a home birth, um, I had a doula, my sister was my doula. That's so cool. Yeah. My mom was there. My, at the time, my mother-in-law, my partner, my four midwives, and also my father-in-law. He just, like, sat in the other room and drank, like, a box of wine. Because oh. <laughs> I think he was very nervous. Oh, but yeah. um, it just to have that community um, made me realize that, like, oh, okay. Like, yeah. this is where it's at. And, the, and I had a 9-pound, 10-ounce baby that wow. had I been in the oh. hospital, yeah. they would have definitely probably wanted to do a c-section yeah and my midwives like had faith in me they trusted me i trusted them so that's kind of after that part i was like okay now i really want to do this yeah because no you know you had mentioned earlier in the uh, our conversation about like teaching a class on that and like how important because that is something that everybody thinks women are educated on but like are they really you know how like important of a conversation to have is birth and people that want to have children yeah. yeah, yeah. I think especially like postpartum too. We're just like, oh, everybody has babies, and we send you home from the hospital or wherever you gave birth, and just are like, okay, good luck. Yeah, there's not a lot of support afterwards, and you know, breastfeeding, and you're you never get enough sleep, and you are in charge of making sure this human stays alive. Yeah, and it's like there's no crash course for that. You just one day you just have it, and then it's like good luck right oh that is just like so important to talk about yeah I I mean I obviously have no like experience but like I watched my aunt lose a nine-month-old baby and like like stillborn and how now both of her kids are like nonverbal autistic and because they were in vitro and I just wish that somebody was able to provide her with that education and help her and you know because I think she would probably feel not even that the kids are not successful, but she would probably just feel a lot better. And I think that's doulas helps women and people with children feel better. Yeah. I mean, they're deaf and like end of life doulas. There should be doulas for everything. I think students yeah. should have doulas. Mm-hmm. Like we really like, and I think that's where the health and the humanities class. I mean, I, I do make it political cause it is political. There's not enough, health you know the health care is terrible uh what you know it and when you're in the hospital and you give birth they're just like okay time's up you yeah. have the baby everybody looks good enough mm-hmm. see you later here's your receipt yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> yeah. here's your receipt with all of the charges a la carte yeah. um 
And if we had that, and again, like that, I think in certain cultures and throughout history, that's been community that steps up and helps in it. And I don't know that, you know, in the U.S., um, we have that quite as much. Yeah. Uh, what I was going to ask, if you knew anything about, like, doulas outside of the states and education about that. That's that's a good question. I mean, I a lot of what we learned as doulas came from indigenous knowledge, um, came from black midwives, came from, you know, um, a lot of Central American uh, kind of birth support. So a lot of this, a lot of the kind of techniques that we use, um, again, massage, touch, uh, herbs, you know, anything, uh, you know, uh, smells, sounds like I think a lot of it comes from that, uh, you know, just like old school, you know, knowledge that we've lost along the way and especially in the hospital situation because, you know, it just is what it is. It's medicalized. Yeah, that's. Yeah, no, and I just, I don't mean to sound uneducated, but just for the listeners out there as well, um, that just the main difference between like a doula and a midwife. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, a midwife is someone who probably, uh, actually, I'm not, I don't totally know what it takes, but you probably have to have at least a nursing degree and then you go to midwifery school. So it used to be that you just kind of apprenticed, but now I think there's, it's more, you know, there are various schoolings to go to and degrees, and then you do apprentice. So you would be a, a midwife assistant. So like when I gave birth, um, my midwife was there, but then her assistant was the one who actually caught Hazel, my my daughter. So, and then she's who trained me to become a doula. That's so cool. What a small world and to keep those connections. Yeah. Like, what an important relationship to keep growing. It is. And I love that. I mean, they are like, other mothers to me for sure so yeah doula is not does not have i mean they may have those degrees but a doula really you can just get trained and or certified um and then you are there as birth support um i could probably catch a baby if i had to but i do not have the training to you know do that yeah, i would be so nervous to drop a baby yeah because it's so wet i'm like no i don't want to hurt the baby um so i also know that your support for pregnant people expands in the planned parenthood as well and also like that is somewhere where like i don't want to say like dream job because i don't think anyone's like dream job is truly in medicine but that's like a whole other opinion but um i just i think what happens there is so important and i I hate that just like this is also just for the listeners, the basic stereotype that it's just for abortions. Yeah. Yeah. So I've actually never worked for Planned Parenthood, but I've worked for the Women's Center. Yeah, so, excuse me. Yeah, yeah. no, no. But, but basically the same thing. The Women's Centers, though, they are primarily for abortion care. They also do like contraceptives and other things. But so like Cherry Hill – Philadelphia and then there are some in other states that are connected as well but yeah you're right Planned Parenthood I think like I don't want to give a number because I'm always wrong when I do this but I think like what is it like under five percent of their services are is abortion care yeah Um, well even contraceptives at women's centers are so important too because then you just think of like like oral like birth control but then think of like con just giving like condoms out to people is like also think just so important because it also prevents like STDs and STIs yeah yes and they also tend to be Planned Parenthood in particular like affordable right so for me that's where I went up until really I got a full-time job here because I didn't have insurance so that's where you know they I was able to go um but yeah so working at those clinics um that other end of that reproductive spectrum um has taught me so much like in terms of you know why people have abortions, what people think about abortions, what abortions actually are, and yeah. what the sort of like more the like larger or like the the care that I think is involved with abortion mm-hmm. uh, care and health care that we don't typically think of because it's always this like political or what what side are you on you yeah know? i like to think about it as like the tiktokification of the discussion of abortion because ever like since that app blessed this planet like it's now 
it is just made like as a like a oh are you this side or this kind kind of thing and i think it bleeds into all forms of social media but it's also just the miseducation that these people learn from tiktok and then that's how they formulate an opinion on it like i think a group in our class had like briefly discussed that as well yeah yeah just miseducation yes and i mean everybody needs health care yeah. and so i know i've said it in class too so people who are on the more anti-abortion side come in and terminate their pregnancies it happens all the time um so you know i don't i don't know if that i have a point to that but yeah, i think no. that like looking at it as health care is is super important and i'd also add that there are abortion doulas too that's wow and then yeah that is so important yeah i gotta look into like doulas i'm like i don't i don't know but if you taught a class here on like doulas or doula 101 like i i would register for that like first yeah yeah Yeah, and that the work that usually at least when i was working in the clinic it was like nursing students or students that needed to get hours in some sort of way and they would volunteer um and a lot of it's just like holding someone's hand especially if they're going to be awake for the procedure Mm -hmm. um you know it's it's not you know what i mean it can be uncomfortable it can be scary you can have a lot of emotions and just having someone there to hold your hand and say like hey it's okay and like sit with you afterwards when Mm -hmm. you are in recovery and just talk it out with Mm-hmm. yeah it's so, like what an important resource to have and to share and to now educate people on and I think with like I know you just briefly mentioned it like people who are anti-abortion and will go and you know t- get an abortion it's I think people hate what they don't understand and I think that's such an important thing because then you think about those senators that will go and be like gay people and trans people don't deserve rights but then they have a grinder account and it's just like all stuff like that and that's why i truly believe that there is no right and there is no wrong because they're just telling us what they want us to think is right and wrong and there really is no right and wrong yeah yeah i mean and also i think too i mean i remember being even when i was in college i used to say like well i'm you know i i had a dual major of english and women's studies it's gender studies now but Um, I remember thinking like, oh, well, I'm pro-choice, but I would never have an abortion, right? Because that would – and then like a year later, I had to make some sort of decision, you know? And I think it's – I don't know. This just like popped into my head, but one of the – the from the ground up that reading that i gave yeah, you all yeah. mm-hmm. they mention they talk about all these things that are indigenous medicine right so not we think of medicine as here's a pill or here's this and one of the uh people that are in the academic article talk about um experience is medicine yeah. that like you know sometimes we actually have to experience the thing to shift our politics or be able to um understand where you know people are coming from yeah and i remember thinking about that and then thinking about covid and how so many people were so close-minded to covid until like their grandmom had it or a neighbor has it and it's just so and i think it's just in our human nature unfortunately is that you know monkey see monkey do you know you don't see it like who's to say that it's even happening to anyone yeah. And that's also, I think, extremely important with the Israel and Palestine conversation as well. It's kind of a lot of people in the States put on their USA goggles and it's like they don't look anywhere else inside besides like what's right in front of them. And that's why these conversations aren't being had. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And also the conversations are are shut down too Absolutely. by whoever yeah. is in power. Yeah. Well, it makes you think about, well, what is higher education? You know, yeah. what's, what's allowed, what's not allowed, what is promoted, what's not. Yeah. And um, I think that students are, not all, but many students are, you know, looking for spaces to be political or talk about politics or work through some of the way their values and beliefs and shift and all of that. And I do think that, I mean, I can't help but bring that into the classroom, which is so important. I'm care. I am careful. Uh, and I also try to be as respectful as I can, but I, I, I want those, even in a writing class, I think that there's a lot of room to talk about 
political rhetoric or to talk about how to, you know, how to be able to communicate what your politics are um, and being able to listen to people and, and, and read and understand and be critical of. Yeah, and and like sharing those readings, and you know, even like like yeah, just like even in a writing one one class, it's just like that brief introduction to it. So maybe a switch would just go off in somebody's head, and then they'll leave the classroom and do their own like research and everything. And I think then they'll bring that conversation to a different class, and that's how it spreads. So like that's like I just keep saying it. This just sounds like I'm like the biggest like because I am a really big fan of you and your teaching style, but it like. Like genuinely, like so many great conversations in the classes that I've shared with you, and I think that's yeah. the like when you like it makes me feel hopeful, and you know, in a time when I feel like I'm just crying all the time, but mm-hmm. I like that fact that students like you are able to take that that what we talked about in class outside, talk to your friends about it. Um, I also know that I think in our class in writing. I don't know. I think we were in 101 and 201. Um, in 201, we read uh, Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Yes. And, you know, it's not part of the, like, quote-unquote standard curriculum, but mm-hmm. I think it makes so much sense to understand oppression before we start talking about how do we, you know, try to make a difference in our careers. Yeah, no, seriously. And, like... Well, and I think students like when we're looking at like who who's oppressed who's the oppressor students are in that well they could probably be in both category to a certain extent but students are in this interesting time in life where they're still kind of like their parents still have some control but they're adults and they're at an institution where they sort of have to you know follow rules, get the grades, do the things. Like, there is, a, you know, I think that you can look at students as being an oppressed class, right? Because you don't quite have – you're not in your jobs yet. You're not out yeah. in the world in a, in a certain kind of, uh, quote-unquote, adult way. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I was going somewhere with that. but Yeah, I, was, I, I totally understand it, though. Yeah, that – yeah, I just – Oh, I know what I was going to say. Yeah, that – but you also have so much power. Yes. So yeah. the fact that, like, I think students feel disempowered sometimes in their positions as students, you all collectively have power because you're not only the students, but you're also the customers. Yeah. I, I agree. I mean, for as long as I've been here, um, I try to always kind of stay on top. And I know there's some things that happen that I find out way later because students t- tell me about it. Um, coming from other institutions that are liberal arts universities, we see it every day. Every day there's something, you know, political going on, you know, and I would say the same thing, that it makes me, even though the conditions that we're living in and people are living in that make demonstrations and protests and other sort of actions have to happen are you know heartbreaking and terrible I also see this shift in students here that they are really engaged and they are they do want to see change Mm -hmm. and like you know I I think that this is also like part of my pedagogy is this is where you practice that Right. Like, and I'm not saying that it's even practice. It's students are really doing it, but it's where you get to practice. Like, okay, what does it mean to make a list of demands? What does it mean to work with a group of people and, you know, think about what kind of action you want to organize and what you want, you know, people to get out of it, who you want to come, how do you write a speech? Yeah. And I will say at the most recent protest that I attended, the like, like, what beautiful, like, literally, like, tear-causing, like, these speeches. And it's just, like, like those are the voices that we need to be listening to right now are the, the young people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and especially those that have family, friends, neighbors, cousins that are affected by these large issues. And I think it is just so great that now that that resource is being used and taken advantage of. 
Yeah. Yeah. And we all have so, I mean, you're, the faculty here have a lot to learn from students. You know, I think that we have learned a lot over the years, but there, again, things are always shifting and students' perspective is um, not something that should be uh, silenced. Yeah. And I, yeah. I, I totally just agree with everything. And then just wanted to also hear more about, I know you had also just like briefly brought it up, your time in activism. I'm just so curious. Yeah, so um, I feel like when I was younger, I was not very smart. Um, I mean, I think I had a lot of, I, I knew that something, I knew that things were wrong and I knew that I wanted, I was like a dissenter. I think that I sometimes did it in ways that I would not do now or my politics have just changed. Right. Um, but I, so a lot of my activism has been mostly related to labor organizing. So, um, at temple, we, the adjuncts, when I was an adjunct there formed a union, I fought really hard, um, I know that every no institution that I know of wants to uh, allow a union to happen, but that is the way that you build worker power. That is the way that you are able to, you know, um, get done often at a very slow pace yeah. in terms of like, you know, organizing and also just like being at the table with the administration. But, um, I, We'll try to say this without crying. But I feel like the day we won that union, the full-timers were already in a union. The day that we were we won to be able to join the union there, I felt like I gave birth to another baby. I really did. I mean, you know, I feel like sometimes I, you know, it's there. I've been let down by the union, right? Unions aren't perfect, but um, just the fact of being part of building that and finally like winning felt so good achievement yeah Yeah. like how proud of yourself should you be after achieving something so important not just for you personally but for so many people like that is such an incredible thing to do yeah Yeah. and and then people have to keep it going and that's i think what what we always talk about in class is Mm -hmm. or try i try to get to maybe we don't always get to it is that you people have to start the fight, whatever the fight is, and you got to kind of come at it from all different directions. Um, and you're often not going to agree with everybody, yeah. right? Like not everybody in that union has agrees on things, mm-hmm. but, and then, you know, you got to get it started and then people are going to have to, you know, you're going to have to politically educate and organize the next g- round of people to, yeah. you know, keep it going. Do you ever get worried that like one day that it'll just like even like here you know because they haven't cut any of them you haven't made any steps but that that it just will be a day that no one will care anymore because that's something that i feel like is scary especially with all the new technology and ai it's like like i feel like people are gonna be kind of secondhand very soon so yes for sure i mean i think just the fact that we can just totally like make up an image and say that that happened or a story and say that that happened. Um, that scares me. And I also, and I'm part of this too. I think that we just like to kind of take our history a la carte and we don't really. And I also think that we don't have a lot of history sometimes. And that's something like when there is a new kind of, and I'm sure you all see it here, even just like new leadership in student leadership positions. Like it's really good for people to know what came before, like what people fought for, what was won, what still needs to happen, what didn't work. And that's maybe what I was trying to say earlier, like in, you know, in practicing how to do organizing and how to do political work, you're going to fail most of the time. Yeah. And like, that is so important. Any, any kind of anything that's ever been organized, any society or anything like yeah. has failed. Right. Yeah. So like, I'm a huge advocate for failure. Yes. I think failure is probably one of the most important things that happened. Like I failed my first chemistry test. Like that's like good. I'm glad cause I'm not a pharmacist. And <laughs> I think failure is such a, a good cause failure causes change and change is good. Yeah, experience yeah. Is, can be medicine. Yeah, yeah, that's experience can be medicine. Wow, yeah, 
so you're just so cool. I just have to say that I, this has been such an enlightening um, conversation to have with you and chat with you. Um, I will bring it down uh, just to a little bit of like a casual question. Are you watching anything crazy right now? Do you have anything that you're like binging or like a documentary or movie that you just watched that's on your mind? So also, I think I mentioned in class, I just finished Reservation Dogs. How which was that? So good. So good. I really think it might be the one of the best TV shows ever made. Super important TV show. Um, I also have to admit that I was, well, I've been anxious for the past couple months. And then I, well, I had started because I had COVID in the summer. I, I watched all of Dawson's Creek. How was that? (laughs) Not something I would ever have like chosen, but somehow I just was like, oh, this feels like something that maybe is just easy and I can, yes, I think it was the brain (laughs) fog and my 15 year old daughter just made fun of me and I just finished it, um, the other day. So I watch a lot of trash and I watch a lot of documentaries and stuff, but Mm um yeah reservation dogs i think is the you know most sort of like current well it's not currently on i think that that was the last season uh but super recommend yeah i got i have hulu so i gotta watch it um i'm, I'm just curious by what you mean by like trash because i'm like a total trash person like i've probably seen like six like seasons of like intervention which is like <laughs> such a horrible show to watch people like literally die on like live tv it's so awful so you're right that actually is probably more trash like the <laughs> sort of more like reality tv yeah. um i don't know what you would categorize just like though I like teen dramas. Oh, yeah. I think even though I don't even know if Dawson's Creek was a good show, like in some <laughs> like well received. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. Yeah. Uh, but I do know that in the last season of it, um, a lot of the side characters were from Twin Peaks. So oh, that wow. was kind of fun. Yeah. No, I I've no, now I have to check Dawson's Creek out. Um, do you have like a, I'm this is actually probably one of my biggest like personality flaws is I'm a very like favorite centered person like like I know a lot of people are but like I have lists of like my top five favorite everything and it might just be because I'm like a little crazy but I like to ask like do do you have like a favorite like all time like movie or like TV show or both I because I know I have both it's a really big question. I really love Donnie Darko. Oh, yeah. I mean, if I have a comfort film, it's... I mean, I still love all those, like, 80s movies and stuff, but because it's, like, set in that time... Yeah, I really love Donnie Darko. Yeah, what a good movie. I haven't seen that movie in so long. Um, How about TV? Hmm. Sopranos. You know what? That's been on my watch list. So I, I watched... I don't know if you've seen Barry on HBO... It's so good. Bill Hader plays an actor serial killer. It's so stupid, but it's so good. But it came on as, like, my little, like, you should watch this next. And then I finished Succession, and then it was, like, Oh, that was good, yeah. Yeah, no, that was, like, you should watch this next. So it's, you know, maybe that can be my, like, final push to finally watch it. Because I, like, see, I like shows about, like, stupid people. So, like, Always Sunny is my favorite show because it's just horrible, stupid, trash people just doing (laughs) normal trash things. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like that. And then I I see something like that. I'm like, that's right up my alley. Yeah. (laughs) So Sopranos. Probably not a lot of trash people on that, though. Very. Well, I mean, yeah, it's a a complicated show. Well, it makes if the the characters are complicated for you as the audience. No, I need to. Yeah. Because how many seasons of that is it? Good question. Six, maybe? Six, I don't remember. I'll, I'll get that done after winter break. Yeah, that, that'll be, like, right through for me. Um, how about what you're listening to right now? Mm. Music, podcast, <sighs> anything? I actually just listen to, like, a lot of classical music. Oh, so, like- again, like, just a little, like, heightened anxiety lately. And so my kid also listens to classical music. So, so we cool. just turn that station on, especially to drive through Philly. Yeah. Uh, oh my, my partner does the same thing. Yeah. We all really love music, but there's something about driving in Philadelphia that makes you need to, like, chill out a little bit. Yeah, no, I couldn't imagine listening to, like, 
anything driving on like when we get off Kelly Drive at that like circle. Oh my gosh, my roommate and I went to go get um, rotating sushi. She got food poisoning. It was such a mess on Friday. Uh, yeah, no, she got so sick. Um, I was fine, of course. But um, we drove through that like the the roundabout right there like four times before finding our parking garage. Like it was really bad. Wow. I don't know how you navigated. Like that was like, and that was the last time we were like, we're never driving here ever again. We're always gonna just take the train. Like and just be two huge babies about it. Um, do you think? Do you go to concerts a lot? Are you I a concert. Person? I don't that often. The last show I went to was. I guess it was the summer I went to see the Pixies for the first time so cool. ever. Pixies have been my favorite band, probably my favorite band for, since I was, you know, a baby. And, um, I mean, I even remember buying the CD of, like, it was, like, Pixies lullaby music for my kid. It was Aww. just, like, you know, just the, they kind of make it in, sound like nursery yeah. music, but... Yeah, so I got to see the Pixies at the Met um, this summer. So that was – and they were so good. I don't know why I always think that, like, you know, artists, musicians that have been around for a long time, like, sort of age out of performing. But, man, they were good. Yeah, no, I keep talking about my roommate, but that's who, like, she's, like, listening to now all the time is the Pixies. So I got to get into that now, too, I guess. Did you like the Met? I did. That was the first time I was... I mean, I think all of these venues are so, like, corporatized, obviously. But, I mean, I think it was... it was. It's nice to be in a venue that is theater-like. Yeah. I, I just hear so many unpopular opinions, but, like, I love it. Like, I'm yeah. going to, like, five shows. I think it's such a cool venue. And I think... Did they not... They took all the chairs out of the bottom and made it a pit. So, no, there actually was no pit because we're all old. Like, the Pixies <laughs> are old. We're old. No. So, listen, I there was a point in time maybe, hmm, I would say maybe even when I was pregnant with Hazel, so 15 years ago, where I was like, I don't think I like to stand anymore. Yeah, <laughs> like, no. My back actually hurts yeah, afterwards. Yeah, no, we are, um, my, like, oh, like two years ago, my roommate and I went to Asbury Park to the Stone Pony, which is, like, probably my favorite venue. I don't know if you've yeah, been out there. I have not, but so I want to. It was so worth the trip and go to the beach or something. It was so nice. But we went to go see Phoebe Bridgers because, like, of course we did. And we got there at 5 in the morning. And we were the 15th or 16th people in line. And we sat outside from 5 until, like, 7 o'clock. Wow. Yeah, and we did the same thing for Rex Orange County, but not really in as many Wow. Lines. Well, mm-hmm. I was thinking the other day about how we used to actually have to, like, go wait in line to get tickets from like whatever the little ticket master like Mm -hmm. stores were and i remember because i grew up like outside of reading pennsylvania and just Mm -hmm. all the time like standing in line for tickets and now things are so different and then you look at all those fees and you're like wait what yeah no i uh just a little not really a plug but tick pick best app no fees yeah, no, I use it. We, um, my roommates and I went to go see the Japanese house on Wednesday, and she was so good. But, um, yeah, we got the tickets the day of, and they were only, like, 40 bucks, and they had no fees. Nice. And they were on Ticketmaster for, like, 85 Definitely, definitely check it out. Okay. It's a good app, yeah. Melissa, thank you so much for coming and chatting with me today. I had such a great conversation with you. Um, I, I don't want to just sound like I'm just rambling on, but I, once again, just admire you as an educator and as a person. And I just wanted to thank you for kind of opening my mind, like, so much more. So I just had to thank you for that. Um, and with that note, I do have one more question for you. I like to ask it to all my guests. Um, if you had the attention of the world for five minutes, what would you say? I call it my Jeopardy question because it's really hard to answer. <laughs> Liberation for all people. There you go. That's all you'd say for all five minutes? Yes. Perfect. Important. That's all I need. Once again, thank you so much. Um, have a great afternoon and don't be a stranger. Thank, thank you, you so much. Yay.